Hey, so good morning and hello everyone and thank you for joining us here. This is actually our very first ever Geezers of Gear episode, uh, podcast episode. So how did we come up with that name is one of the things we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about who is Gear Source, why are we doing this crazy podcast, who are the two guys you're talking to, uh, some other things about our history. We're just going to talk a little bit about everything really. So uh, really happy to have you here. And I also would like to introduce you to my partner in crime and the co-geezer on Geezers of Gear, Henry Konas. Hey, good morning, everybody. How you doing, uh, Henry? Let's get this thing rolling. I'm already feeling old by being called a geezer, but I yeah. guess there's a lot to go over here. We had a few names to choose from. One of them was Grandfathers of Gear, so I'm kind of happy that we uh, settled on geezers instead because uh, I'm not quite a grandfather yet, and nor is Henry, so uh, geezers of gear it is. So really, um, the geezers of gear thing came about because when we look around the industry, most of our buyers, sellers, friends, users of our site and a lot of our employees are a heck of a lot younger than us. So um, really, the industry is moving down in age. There's a lot more talent coming in, a lot of really great creative people coming in, and that's really, really exciting. Uh, so at the same time, it obviously starts to make you feel a little bit old when you're on the other side of that, right, Henry? Yeah, absolutely, for sure. I mean, you know, you, you go to a trade show, you go to an LDI, you go to an Infocom, and all the gray-haired guys I know and all the guys that have, you know, brown and black hair, you're going, hey, who are these guys? And while you know some of them, you, you realize that, yeah, there are a lot of new people getting into the business and uh, being very successful at it, for sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even uh, when I look through Polestar or some of the uh, industry trade magazines and stuff, I'm seeing more and more tours being designed by people uh, either A, I don't even know, or in some cases, I know them, I know their name, I'm obviously familiar with their work, but I have no relationship with them. And in the past, I used to read through those magazines and, and articles and things, and pretty much every major tour, I, I had a pretty tight relationship, and, and probably you as well, Henry, with, uh, with the designer, with the lighting director, with the crew chief. Uh, nowadays, not so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank God I can still beg for tickets every now and then on one of the, you know, Iron Maiden shows or something like that, right? But yeah. the, the news, absolutely. It's uh it's very interesting. And also, yeah. you know, what's what's also interesting is how much, you know, lighting design and people in our industry have grown in their specific market. So you you know, obviously the church market has expanded a lot. So you have just a whole core of designers that do that or core designers that do pixel mapping on buildings and that's all they do uh, moment factory is one of those companies that comes to mind where they do these enormous displays and uh man they do awesome work so yeah, yeah they, the right? skill the skill set has definitely evolved and i've seen some people starting to call themselves visual designers as opposed to lighting designers because obviously video does play such an impact or um not even just video but even uh, pushing out video through lighting fixtures uh, has become a, a thing. So um, really everything's changed so much. And it, uh, you mentioned another thing about you can still reach out and get tickets for an Iron Maiden show. You're going to have to tell me how to do that because I know the last uh, 10 or 15 times I've actually really wanted to see something or say hello to people on a tour. 
I uh, have reached out and I've been pushed off to a VIP ticket office. So it seems that the old uh, days of comp tickets and every guy on the tour or girl on the tour got 10 or 12 tickets to, that they could hand out to family or friends or vendors or whatever. Uh, those days really seem to be gone uh, for most of the tours. And I'm sure that's driven by the bands who aren't making as much money selling records anymore. But no, that's absolutely true. I mean, it's all about ticket sales. And yeah, certainly, you know, when you, when you call for free tickets these days, you know, normally, again, we, you know, we go back in the day, we go back into the, the 80s, the 90s, um, some of the early 2000s, you'd call somebody up, you'd get a laminate, you'd be front row. I remember yeah. Jeff Rabbits, I wanted to take a date out to go see, I think it was Shania Twain. And so I called him up and got a front row seat and a laminate. It was great. And nowadays, yeah, you know, you have to go through the accounting office, which that's, I guess that's one of the things in the business that has changed. It's almost like flying for free on, you know, if you're dating a flight attendant, things like that. Tickets yeah. are limited. Same thing with theme parks, right? Tickets are limited these days. So I guess it's shifted to all about the money, right? So, well, it's certainly a little tougher to make a buck these days than I think it used to be. And certainly <laughs> in the in the music business, you know, we all have a pretty solid knowledge of what happened there and the fact that iTunes came in and it really changed the the surface of the music business and it changed the way these people are making money. And, you know, acts that used to perform in 10,000 seat venues are now performing in nightclubs quite often. And they're out there doing it so that they can make a living because you see bands, great bands from the 70s, 80s, 90s, coming out with new albums that are virtually being ignored. And so you'll see, especially in our dinosaur or geezer genre of music being, you know, the 70s and 80s, heavy rock or metal, you're seeing bands like Judas Priest or even Iron Maiden coming out with a new album and it's at the top or it's it's on the billboard chart like at number 67, week number one, week number two, it's like 376. It's no longer on the chart. And, you know, instead of selling 100,000 albums in the first week, they're selling 5,000 or 10,000 or 15,000. It's just a completely different business now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's kind of funny if you, you know you're getting old when you turn on the, you know, the Aussie channel, Aussie's Boneyard on Sirius XM radio, or you go to Hair Nation, you know, some of the bands that we grow up with and they say classic rock from this band, you know, so that's pretty funny. Yeah, it when is. I was years old driving around it was all you know 60s bands psychedelic music things like that right so well it, it, it's funny because i remember when def leppard started playing on classic rock and i was like oh my god def leppard is classic rock like that's the hottest latest greatest stuff and now they're really dinosaurs on classic rock stations def leppard so yeah it the the world has evolved the music world has evolved and like we said at the start of this conversation certainly our business has evolved from a standpoint of the people and so you know one of the reasons behind our doing this podcast is so that we can connect with some of those people and we realize that delivering the message today is certainly a lot different than it was 15 20 and I hate to say it, but 30 years ago when we got into this business, both Henry and I. And so um, we are trying really hard to just communicate with people and to get out there and to talk not only about our business, because we are going to spend some time talking about Gear Source. The name of the podcast is Gear Source Geezers of Gear. 
And but we also want to talk about the industry. And so, you know, why a podcast really? Because that's what people seem to connect to. Uh, you can listen to us talk about nonsense or talk about gear or uh, we're going to interview a lot of uh, big designers, a lot of interesting people, a lot of geezers just like us. We're going to bring on to this program and talk to them about where they see the business going, uh, maybe some funny stories from the past. So we're going to try and keep it relevant and fresh and fun. Uh, it's not going to be very corporate or formal. So if you're easily offended or bothered by, uh, anything silly or funny, or you don't want to waste your time, then I can completely appreciate that. But I promise, you know, we're not going to change to, uh, to try and connect with one person. We're going to talk about what we're going to talk about. And if you like it, great. If you don't, then I apologize. But fortunately there's tens of thousands of other podcasts out there that you'll be able to listen to. So, um, just to dive in a bit, uh, so who are we? Who who are the two people that you're listening to? I'm Marcel Fairbairn. I am the founder of GearSource. I started the company in 2001. Prior to that, I had spent uh, about 15 years, I guess, uh, yeah, around 15 years in the lighting business. Um, I had uh, started out as a musician in the very early days and then moved from music into selling lighting into nightclubs and theaters and other projects. In doing so, I attracted the attention of Martin, uh, the manufacturer out of Denmark. I became a, a large reseller of the Martin products up in Canada. Martin eventually hired me to come and work in their U.S. office as a sales manager for a territory. And I did quite well in that role and continued to move my way up the ranks in Martin until I was running their, their entire sales and marketing team. And uh, I left the company. They were a much different and much larger company when, than when I started. I think when I started, it was about a 5 or $6 million global company. When I left, it was about a $150 million public global company. And I like to think I played a big role in that. I certainly got them out of being what was uh, deemed a disco lighting manufacturer and moved them into the professional world where they were being featured on tours and the Academy Awards and Grammy Awards and all kinds of major events, a Super Bowl. And so after that, when I left Martin, I went to Martin's biggest competitor. It was actually a very funny story. This was 1996, I believe, and maybe 97. It was 97, actually. And um, I drove kind of a fancy car, and it had a car phone in it. And this was before uh, handheld little tiny iPhones and things were super popular. So I had uh, gone into my office at about 6.30 in the morning. It was a very stressful time because Martin was really in my heart and soul, and I went into my office early and I typed up a fax to Peter Johansson, the founder of the company, and I let him know why I was leaving and that really the company was in my heart and I felt terrible that I felt I had to leave, but there was a lot of reasons behind why and I really felt I had no choice, that I had to leave the company. And a few of our employees started coming in and asking me, what's going on? And I said, yeah, I'm leaving the company. And I sent the fax through to Mr. Johansson. And I said bye to those few close employees, my secretary, a few of my salespeople that were wandering in. And people were literally crying. It was, it was really a kind of a crazy morning. So I get in my car with my little car phone and my box of uh, stuff from my office. Very 
somber mood, not feeling really great about what I'd just done, but knowing that I had to do it. So I was pretty uh, committed to the idea. And my phone rings in my car. I don't know, I was maybe less than a mile away from my office. When my phone rang in my car, I answer it. I don't know who it is. And uh, he says, hi, Marcel, this is uh, Lowell Fowler. And for those of you who don't know, Lowell is the uh, one of the co-founders of High End Systems. So Lowell uh, said, I heard you're available and we'd like to talk to you. And I was blown away by this because I had just resigned via fax. It certainly wasn't out on a press release or in any magazine articles yet. Um, Twitter didn't exist. Twitter didn't exist, so it wasn't out on Twitter. And so I have no idea how it got to Mr. Fowler so quickly. But literally within 30 minutes of me sending a fax to Denmark, uh, I was being invited to come to Austin. And I had a huge amount of respect for Lowell, for for his co-founders, for most, if not all, of the staff at High End Systems. And so I was flattered. And uh, but I said, let me talk to to my wife and, and, you know, I'll get back to you. So I ended up going to Austin and working at High End as a VP. And that's where uh, my relationship with Henry continued because Henry and I had been doing business while I was at Martin and he was uh, running his dad's operation, Mr. Hanks. And so the rest, as they say, is kind of history. I went on to do more things in the automated lighting world. I kind of burned out on that or just decided I wanted to try something else in my life. And that's when I sat around my swimming pool after I left my last company, which I actually owned a small piece of. I sat around my pool on a golf course behind my house and just spent days and weeks and even a few months just thinking about what to do next. And that's when the concept of Gear Source came to mind. Uh, I really drew it up in my head. I wrote out lots and lots of different funny logos and names. I still actually have the sheets. Maybe I'll share it with all of you one day. Uh, but I wrote lots and lots of logos and names and taglines and all kinds of things. And I ended up with Gear Source being uh, sort of the the direction that I wanted to go. So I'm going to add one more funny story and then I'll shut up and, and let my partner talk here. But um, when we started the company or when I started the company, uh, the name Gearsource or Gearsource.com, the domain name was not available. And not knowing much at the time about internet sites and how the whole web thing worked and stuff, I thought, no big deal. We'll just put a dash in the middle. So I, I went and purchased the domain Gear-Source.com. I later in life found out that that really is kind of the kiss of death for a lot of websites. If you have a, dot, a dash or a funny spelling or, you know, an extra dot or you do a dot org or a dot co or a dot us, whatever, a lot of those ideas don't work very well. So you have to have your core dot com. Uh, if you want to be successful. And, you know, certainly there are going to be examples that that were very successful without that, but I wasn't the one. So uh, we were having a lot of people having trouble finding our website. Um, in the branding, our original logo actually designed the dash as kind of a lightning bolt, and it was lit- literally designed on a, on a napkin and then uh, drawn out in Photoshop or whatever it was, uh, Illustrator. And... Uh, so eventually I got a call. So the, the domain was owned by a defunct 
Cisco reseller, the gearsource.com domain. So I get a call from this guy and he says, hey, I own the domain Gearsource. I noticed that you have a business called Gearsource, but you use a Dash. And I said, yeah, yeah, we're pretty happy with the Dash. And meanwhile, I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is like Christmas. And he said, well, you know, would you be interested in buying the domain without the Dash? I said, yeah, yeah, but, you know, it's not really worth much because we've already marketed with the Dash. So he asks me for $10,000. I just choked on my coffee and laughed at him and said, no, I can't do that. And then he came back and said, $5,000. I said, no, thank you. We'll continue going with the Dash. Meanwhile, I'm dying inside. I want it so bad. And he calls me about a week later and says, hey, I notice you sell these smoke machine things on your website. <clears throat> Is it possible that you could just trade me one of those machines for the domain name? And so very long story, very uh, still long. Uh, I ended up trading a Martin, I forget which model fogger it was, but it was a Martin or a gem fog machine that I think my cost on it was probably about two or three hundred dollars. Uh, I traded that for the gearsource.com domain name and we've owned it ever since. That was probably 2002 or three, I guess. So that's really the story of what got us in business and got us here. That's my bio, uh, or at least an abbreviated version of it. Henry, uh, between his father and himself, also has a very storied and colored background that's pretty exciting. And um, sorry, Henry, before starting, uh, I'd like to just add one more story. When I first moved to the United States and started working for Martin, I was a naive sort of scared little Canadian boy living in the tough market of, of Miami. And one of the very first customers that my boss, Gerard Cohen, sent me to see was uh, Henry Kona's <laughs> senior, Henry's father, Mr. Hank. And so I thought nothing of it. Hey, I'm from the club business. This guy's in the club sound and lighting business. We'll get along great. Well, we didn't. And uh, so, you know, he basically scared the pants off of me and, and uh, convinced me that, you know, doing business in Miami and in America was very different than Canada. And, you know, that I kind of needed to get my, my feet wet and learn the business. And, uh, but he was also very kind and gave me all kinds of advice. And I had nothing but respect for the guy. So it was, uh, it was an interesting first encounter, though. I remember that distinctly for sure. Yeah. So a little bit on a little bit on me. It's kind of funny uh, with you telling stories, Marcel. I thought up uh, thought of a really interesting story. You know, in high school, you take these uh, preference tests, so they they test your personality type as to you know what you're inclined to do. So um, I remember taking that test distinctly, and the results came back that I should be a forest ranger, right? <laughs> so I went into the most I can see it. related business that I could think of, which was the sound and lighting business, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I can see how they're very similar, right? Yeah, exactly, right? So, um, you know, my story, a um, little bit different. I was going to grade school in North Miami, and my father, who was working at Ace Music at the time, had decided to leave and open up his own um electronics repair business and at the same time he had also developed a proprietary speaker cabinet uh that became very popular it was used on a lot of tours yes and a bunch of people um used to tour with them but you know when you grow up in a family business you learn to sweep the floors from the bottom up and that's exactly where it all started for me believe it or not in uh in 1970 and i would walk across a two-lane road 
to get to my father's business. It was probably, you know, from the school, it was a whopping 200 yards. And that's kind of how I got started in the business. So, uh, you know, you start by vacuuming the floors. Uh, you learn to interact with customers a little bit. And then your dad starts to teach you how to recone loudspeakers and uh, wow. fire up amp racks, you know. So I think I reconed my first loudspeaker when I was at 10 years old, you know, on a Saturday morning. It was kind of interesting. Wow. Uh, yeah, as a reward for that, I remember we used to close the shop at 12 noon on Saturdays, and then my dad would let me uh, watch professional wrestling until one, and then come back and get me after lunch, and we'd go golfing and do things. Um, yeah, so, you know, as, as I got a little bit older and uh, I guess had a knack for this business, gradually grew up again. I mentioned, you know, wiring amplifier racks. I started to sell, became familiar with a lot of sound equipment at a very, very, very early age. So, you know, again, everything, connecting everything from A to Z, my dad would take me out on a lot of sound gigs. He did sound for Sinatra on several occasions. So I had the opportunity, he did a lot of uh, St. Jude's benefits and that's where Sinatra and Streisand and things like that, all of the classic, classic uh, vocalists, uh, you know, that you listen to around Christmas time these days, I uh, had early exposure to that. But, um, you know, it's kind of interesting as I was growing up and I remember distinctly what was the trigger point uh, for me really, really loving this business. I got home from school one day and uh, the way they advertised albums in, uh, in the business, there was no internet back then, so you would have a television commercial. So I get home and I flip the TV on to see what's on and there is the advertisement for Kiss Double Platinum. And it had... Um, you know, it had a picture of the all chrome album. For those of you that haven't seen it, it's kind of worth going on the internet and looking. It was a beautifully embossed uh, album, but it showed the first snippet of their concert footage that I had seen. And there was a million lights on it, uh, mostly disco style lights, right? A lot of chasing lights, uh, flamethrowers, dry ice effects and things like that. And I just remembered it was so impactful for me. It's like, this is where I found my true calling, right? This is like, this is what I got to do. And uh, I eventually, some years later, it was kind of funny. I had the um, the honor of talking to Paul Stanley for about 45 minutes backstage once. And I just thanked him for him getting me in the business. So it was uh, it was kind of interesting. And uh, I, I, Paul Stanley, if you can, you know, if you can get him alone and you don't gush all over him about Kiss and the makeup and the history of everything else, he's an incredibly decent, decent guy to talk to. So we had a great conversation. We shook hands and, uh, there you go. That was out in Los Angeles. So that was, uh, that was pretty cool. Um, in about, uh, the late nineties, I think it was 96 or 97. Um, my father's business, uh, Mr. Hank actually had a fire on the inside. Um, my dad was aging at that point. So high end systems had extended an offer to me. I had you know, I'd known the founders, uh, Lowell, Bob and Richard of high end for a really, really long time. They extended an offer to me. I sat down and talked to my father. He wanted to retire. So I headed off to Austin and went to work for high end systems. I will remind you, Henry, that we extended an offer to you as well at that time. That's right. Golly, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, we did. I think you probably made the right choice though, given the timing and stuff. Yeah, that's correct. So, uh, you know, from there, that's where I guess Marcel and I hooked up again. Um, Worked in service for about a year, learning the product from A to Z. Richard Bellevue, uh, one of my 
my mentors. He's like, you know, Henry, if you're going to sell stuff and you're going to be in, in this industry, you're going to need to know everything about lights that there possibly is. And so um, I was put down into service when I was promoted to sales. Uh, both you and I, Marcel, I guess, took the Northeast Territory together where I worked in a business development role. You took all the, the big guns, the PRGs, and uh, there you have it from there. Yeah. And um, so, you know, after you left, because I know that you had uh, some other changes, you ran Comar, right? And then you started uh, GearSource. And we stayed in contact, obviously. And by that time, you know, the venture capitalists had come into our business and, you know, started to make it uncomfortable for a lot of people. And I guess that's another thing about being a geezer is you remember the good old days where, you know, you had ownership in companies and you didn't have big money investments and things like that. It can be uncomfortable sometimes when you have, uh, you know, vulture capitalists coming into your business. So, uh, you know, obviously, uh, I had been fed up after the, the launch of some very bad products out of high end. Uh, Marcel, you and I stayed in contact, obviously, and the opportunity came up for Rental Source, which was a, you know, it was a pre-Google, pre-Facebook, uh, pre-MySpace internet directory to, you know, have uh, sound and lighting gear to advertise your sound and lighting gear as part of, uh, of a rental inventory where people would contact you directly. Yeah, honestly, uh, the, the thing about rental source that that's interesting. So I think a lot of people don't know that prior to even you coming on board, Henry, with rental source, that business was started, uh, an idea by me, but Nick Freed and, uh, I believe Gary Mass was involved as well, but they, uh, jumped on board with me to take take off that business to basically grab it and run and they were partners in the original founding of that business and the the issue was neither of them really at the time had a had a startup mindset in other words they needed a paycheck so um, they really uh, didn't last very long and so I was kind of floundering and I said you know do I do I want to keep this business alive or do I kill it? What do I do? And I think it was just a chance conversation I had with you. And you said, wow, I love this concept. And to be perfectly honest, to me, rental source was really the greatest idea that never worked for us. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I still believe in it today. I think it was a great model, but it just, you know, the industry didn't grab it. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons the industry didn't grab it is because a lot of the companies, a lot of especially the larger companies, rental companies, don't want to publish their information. They're very private in that they don't want their competitors knowing exactly how much of any type of inventory they have. Well, today. Yeah. Uh, but the crazy thing is when you're creating a social platform or a shared collaborative platform where you're basically putting in, let's say, uh, 10 companies have 100 lights each you know we now have a pool of a thousand lights but you need to show those thousand lights to everybody and the availability of those thousand lights if none of if no one wants to say i have a hundred lights you don't know how many are in the pool and it makes it very difficult to bring rental uh business back to that pool so we were kind of in a catch-22 situation everybody wanted the rental business but nobody really wanted to expose their inventory and um you know, today, as you said, it's probably still the same. 
Yeah, absolutely. It is. People are still secretive. You know, competition is fierce out there for sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and I get the competition thing, but, you know, again, I mean, it's, it's like I remember when Facebook started. I remember having conversations with people in my family, with friends of mine, with other people in business saying, I would never share a picture of my child online. And I can tell you at five o'clock this morning, I, I saw a lot of kids' pictures and dog pictures and pictures of what people had for dinner last night and birthday party pictures and everything else. So we've become a very social and very sharing, very non-private uh, population. And um, the industry kind of needs to catch up to that because I think that a collaborative approach would really help businesses who are struggling because you know our business was founded on the the basic concept that that uh, company a has equipment company b needs equipment we're just connecting it we're you know we're the connector that enables company b and company a to do business together and so in rental source that's the same thing that we were basically doing but on a rental uh, so instead of owning the equipment, you were just going to borrow it for a while in a rental program. And um, I think it needs to happen because what you're seeing in this industry today is you're seeing plummeting prices, you're seeing uh, less profitable companies, and it's creating an environment where private equity groups are able to come in and, and really clean up. And they're like vultures right now, just, you know, Either people are aging out of their businesses and saying, ah, you know what, somebody's going to throw me a little bit of cash, I'll take it. Or um, people are struggling and, and finding it harder and harder, especially with the cost of new equipment these days. You know, now that we're looking at uh, digital everything and, and much more expensive systems and products and, you know, a rider for equipment on a show today is very expensive compared to what it was 20 years ago when it was... Uh, you know, a whole lot of park hands and, and speaker cabinets and a few moving lights. And, you know, now a lighting console is $50,000, $60,000, where uh, it used to be, you know, a, a tenth of that or, or at least, you know, 20% of that. So I remember looking at the pricing of the first LCD controller from high-end systems, and I think it was like $3,200 dealer cost. And that's the biggest amount of money I'd ever seen for a lighting controller because we were still doing everything on, you know, faders and, and things like that. When the, the advent of the automated lighting console came out, it took a significant price jump. And you're right, they've gotten pretty pricey these days. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely true. I mean, they're, they're very uh, complex devices now and they're very expensive. So, you know, and the other problem is if you're going to go out and do a show with, for example, a Grand MA3 console, you don't buy just one, you have to have one and a backup. And so if it's a $50,000 console, that's $100,000 just to control yeah. the lights on a show. And, you know, and then you may have more than one show, God forbid. So now you need four of those consoles. So it is a very expensive business to be in. I believe that um, someone like us or someone else with very deep pockets who wants to go out and create that business, but um, someone needs to help people to work together so that inventories can be shared and, and uh, you know, I, so that ultimately companies can continue to exist and be, be successful and profitable. Absolutely. I agree with that for sure. 
So um, really, anything else you want to talk about today, Henry? Because really, this was meant to be just an introduction and to say hi to people and let people know what we're doing and why we're doing this podcast and to kind of introduce you to the geezers of gear and let you know who we are and some background on us. Um, As I said, we're going to talk a whole lot uh, about a lot of topics, some related to our business, some related to your business, some completely unrelated. Um, We're just going to have fun and and talk to and about and with a lot of uh, really great friends and and people we respect a whole lot in this industry and stuff. So we expect to have a whole lot of fun. I think, uh, uh, Henry, you probably have some ideas of some stuff we're going to talk about on the next episode. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so it's just kind of funny when we, in going back and forth uh, and talking to you about the, you know, the podcast concept, certainly one of the topics that I want to get into, which, which is kind of interesting, um, is the evolution of the light bulb as, as a light source in our business. So, you know, obviously if you're, you know, if you're a 22 year old and you're coming into this business, everything is LED, but how did it kind of really get there and what did we really have to endure in terms of uh, the evolution of that technology to get it to the point where it was today, right? Where it's very reliable as a light source. And you know, when was it not reliable and how did it evolve? So, you know, that's that's something that I think is interesting. I think that uh, it's worth sharing for sure on our next podcast. I think you know, uh, I think a great guest to talk about that kind of stuff would be our friend Mr. Lowell Fowler because uh, he's probably got you know the evolution of lighting set up somewhere in his house or his garage or something. I'm sure. Uh, I know. Last time I talked to him, he was doing some uh, these like antique light fixtures and things. Really cool, industrial, neat stuff. So steampunk, yeah, yeah, Very. yeah. Well, great. That's that's awesome. I look forward to talking to you again on the next episode. And I appreciate everyone who joined us today and listened to a couple of geezers talk a little bit about some stuff in the industry and some stories and whatever. Uh, like I said, we're planning and hoping to keep it real fresh and exciting and interesting. So please do join us again on the next episode. Thanks, all. Bye-bye. Sweet, sweet child